Welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Greatness within you. You know, with my own life as an example, I've learned a hell of a lot about trial and struggle and error and growth and development and achievement. But I had to learn even more than I ever dreamed before I'd understood what it would take to get where I wanted to go. And while I'm not where I want to be yet, I am damn close. And I sure have come a long way. And one thing I realized, one thing I am conscious of is I had to go through hell to get here. And at this point, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's not easy. It's hard changing your life. I'm talking about a problem in my life. So for you, I don't know what it is, but that problem, you cannot ignore it. Why? It will not go away. It will not go away on its own. It will not. You won't just wake up one day and it won't be there anymore. It's going to be there and it will haunt you for the rest of your life. So I'm telling you from personal experience, deal with it. Deal with it. And the sooner you deal with it and the sooner you overcome it, the sooner you get to your rewards, baby. The sooner you get on the other side of it, the sooner you begin to feel fulfillment. The sooner you get on the other side of self-actualization, your dreams become a reality. The sooner you get on the other side of the problem is a wealth of success. The sooner you deal with the fact that you have testing anxiety, deal with it. It's not the end of the world. Deal with it. Because when you deal with it, you can create a solution for it and you can get over it. Deal with it. That, 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 that you and your children don't have the best relationship, deal with it. Deal with the fact that you are a procrastinator. Deal with the fact that it's hard for you to execute. Deal with the fact uh, every time something happens, you're worried about it. Deal, deal with the fact that you have this anxiety that every time you're about to reach another level of success, every time you're about to go to another level, feel overwhelmed. Deal with the fact that you're struggling with your success. That, that you feel like why me and why not my sister and why me and why not other people. Deal with the fact that you feel guilty that you're successful. Deal with it. And ladies and gentlemen, I started working on my dream. And most people don't work on their dreams. Why? For many years I didn't. One is because of fear. The fear of failure. What if things don't work out? And the fear of success. What if they do and I can't handle it? The other thing is that most people, ladies and gentlemen, they get comfortable. They stop growing, they stop working on themselves, they stop stretching, they stop pushing themselves, and they end up becoming very cynical about life, and they throw in the towel on themselves, and on their families, and on their dreams. And the other thing is that most people don't feel worthy. What I'm doing now, I could have been doing years ago, but because I did not have a college education, because I didn't believe in myself, because I allowed other people's opinion of me to control my destiny, I didn't act on my ideas. And not only is it important for you to know it's possible for you to choose your future, but it's necessary that you work on yourself, that you develop yourself. It's necessary that you get the energy drainers out of your life, people who don't want anything, people who are not striving, people who are not challenging themselves, people who aren't growing, people who have stopped dreaming. 
It's necessary that you align yourself with people and attract people into your business who are hungry, people who are unstoppable and unreasonable, people who are refusing to leave life just as it is and who want more. My mother used to say, birds of a feather flock together. If you run around with losers, you will end up a loser. It's necessary that you get the losers out of your life if you want to live your dream. The next step is, that is you. That is you. That no one can do it for you but you. And even though you face disappointments, even though you will experience some setbacks, it goes with the territory. You must understand that. What if all of us took that attitude after we face a rejection and a no, or we have a meeting and no one shows up, or somebody say, you can count on me, and they don't come through. What if we have that kind of attitude, the cause repossessed, nobody believes in you, you've lost again and again and again, the lights are cut off, but you're still looking at your dream, reviewing it every day and say to yourself, it's not over until I win. You are going to incur, incur a lot of disappointment, a lot of failure, a lot of pain, a lot of setbacks, a lot of defeats. But in the process of doing that, you will discover some things about yourself that you don't know right now. What you will realize is that you have greatness within you. What you'll realize is that you're more powerful than you can ever begin to imagine. What you will realize is that you are greater than your circumstances, that you don't have to go through life being a victim. What I'd like for you to do right now, I want you to think about your dream, because I'm in a room full of dreamers. Think about your dream right now, once you think about it, and envision it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me share something with you. I do not believe that any of us have dreams that were not given to us for the purpose of accomplishing those particular dreams. And I want to share something with you that has changed my life. That that dream that you're holding in your mind, that it's possible. See, sometimes we can't say, I can do that. But what we can say, that it's possible that I can have my dream as we run toward it, as we work on it day in and day out. It's necessary to know that everybody won't see it, that everybody won't join you, that everybody won't have the vision. It's necessary to know that, that a lot of people like to complain, but they don't want to do anything about their situation, that you are an uncommon breed. You know, you have to know within yourself and I can do this even if no one else sees it for me, I must see it for myself. That's necessary. It's also, ladies and gentlemen, necessary that you be creative when you're working on your ideas. That you understand the importance of, of changing up. I can live my dream. It's necessary. I work on myself. Surround myself with winners. Become creative. It's me. I've got to make it happen. It's not over until I win.
Although I had already been struck by a speeding tow truck traveling at 50 miles per hour while walking in a random crosswalk and had healed my body, my mind, my spirit, and my direction were still under construction. So there I was, with a fit body and what I thought was a clear mind, I made my way toward downtown Long Beach to complete the battery of occupational aptitude tests. The year was 1983. I was 26 years old. The tests were held at some psychologist's office, which doubled as a testing center. The specific tests employed were the revised Beta Form 2, the Quick Test of Intelligence, the Gilmore Oral Reading Test, the Wide Range Arithmetic Test, the Job-Oriented Sentence Completion Test, the Bennett Mechanical Test, the EAS-3 Test, the Purdue Pegboard, and the Strong Campbell and Career Assessment Inventory Test. When I arrived at the address from the employment counselor's correspondence, I was immediately ushered into a large room with a lot of chairs and put to work. I seemed to be one of the only two people taking the tests. I worked eagerly, diligently, and confidently. At this point in my life, I felt more capable than I ever had. Tests had formerly frightened me. I didn't seem to feel the same kind of pressure that I used to feel. It had been a long time since I was tested for anything except martial arts skills. For several hours, I was immersed in a variety of written questions, mathematic equations, manual dexterity evaluations, and the general probing of my mind. But the more tests I completed, the more uncomfortable I felt. I began to feel like some sort of laboratory goofball. I was following the instructions, but the questions became more and more personal. I had never answered those types of questions, which seemed to be designed to uncover my innermost thoughts. If someone would have asked me those kinds of questions directly, I probably would have told them to mind their own business. Many of the written questions were about family. The questions seemed to make me somewhat emotional and regretful. As I reflect, I realized that the tests were designed to find out what was important to me and where my values and real interests were. But at the time, I was uncomfortable with the realization that I couldn't BS my way through this like I had done with so many things so many times in order to make it. The questions they asked forced me to ask the same questions of myself. As I sat there in the quiet testing room, I began to feel confined. I couldn't seem to run from myself. I felt, if I let these white people look inside of me, they'll never let me succeed. My perceptions began to border on paranoia. I tried not to show it, but I was getting nervous about strangers knowing more about me than I do. As always, when I became worried or frightened, anger kicked in for protection. On the outside, I continued being cordial, but as I came to the final test, reading comprehension, on the inside, I was fired up. I was escorted from the testing room into a doctor's office. The name played on the door read Dr. William J. Brodsley, PhD. I was instructed to sit down in the nearest chair and I complied. The firm looking doctor never looked up. He seemed extremely indifferent, which made me even more uncomfortable. Thoughts of racism began bouncing around in my head. It became obvious to me that this man could give a shit about me. Suddenly, he broke the silence. Still, without looking at me, 
he slid a book in my direction and instructed me to read. Read this paragraph, he said sternly. By now, I was peering at him with a pronounced frown on my face, too. I looked slowly and methodically and then picked up the book and read the paragraph. After I finished, I placed the book back on his desk. Finally, the faraway doctor looked, at me, looked up at me. Now, tell me what you read, he asked, with what appeared to be a look of skepticism on his face. I quietly told him what my interpretation of the text was, and he quickly looked back toward his desk and jotted some notes. Suddenly, he uttered his final words to me. That's all. You can go now. He never looked up again. I rose slowly from my chair and walked out of his office while looking directly at him all the while. He was totally unconcerned with me. He was in his own little world. By the time I walked out of that place, I was genuinely angry. How dare that cracker trivialize me, I thought. Now they have dug all inside my head and asked me all these personal questions in the world, and I don't even rate a courtesy of a proper greeting? Fuck them, I thought. I'm going to show all these freaking people. As I look back, it's possible that the doctor was overwhelmed with work or was having a bad day or who knows what. But I took it as a blatant disregard for me as an individual. I'm Roger Bush Hamilton. How dare that fool not even give me a drop of respect? I was 26 years old. I had experienced all kinds of doubt. And I had endured all kinds of pain. I was walking down that California street on the way to the bus stop with a bona fide case of the ass. I began to regret ever having taken the stupid tests. Your success will never be created by white people, I thought to myself, as I stomped along the warm pavement. You better go do some things for yourself. They could give a shit about you, I punctuated to myself. I continued my athletic, bouncing, angry, walking pace. Even though it was my choice to leave my vehicle this time, I was even pissed that I would have to take the bus. I felt like I had lost a certain level of control. I wanted out. As soon as possible, I was getting the hell out of California and proceed with my plan to return to college in Maryland. At least I would be around some positive HBCU black people, I thought. It was a warm but mild afternoon as I made my way. I was in a pleasant and uncongested commercial district. Suddenly, I snapped out of my angry trance, and just as I did, I looked directly to my left and saw a very unassuming, unadorned, tiny office space with a faded white oblong cardboard sign with red letters which read, Don Haney Associates. I assure you, there was not anything even remotely fancy about this little joint. I peered inside the murky windows and noticed a lone gentleman sitting with his head buried in some sort of paperwork. To this day, I have no idea what I expected but I walked up the short walkway and tugged firmly on the door. After two tugs, I realized that the door was locked. As if I was some important caller, I stood there almost demanding that the man open up. He looked up, then waved his hands in front of his face. I continued standing there quietly. I didn't even know what I wanted, but I was going to wait there until he opened the door. Finally, he rose from his seat and walked slowly over to the all-glass door and opened it. 
You could hear his keys jangling on the door's metal frame as the youthful-looking man dressed in a white shirt and tie looked me in the eyes. What can I do for you? He asked. I was operating totally on instinct as I began asking questions of the serious but friendly-looking Caucasian man. What do you do here, may I ask? I questioned the man like I was somebody important. He offered a slight frown and replied to my question. We're a manufacturer's representative company, he stated quietly. What is that? I asked sternly. I still had an attitude about the doctor, so I really didn't care if the man was impatient. The man offered a condescending half-smile and tried to briefly explain what a manufacturer's rep was. Well, he said, we represent several different manufacturers in the office products and stationary industry. We go into the field and sell their products, which eliminates their need to create their own direct sales force. I was getting impatient. I had no idea what he was talking about. I could hardly even remember what he had said. I was really still kind of preoccupied. Well, you need any sales reps here? I interjected. Again, he smiled. Well, we don't need anybody at this time, he said. As if to say, if we did need somebody, it wouldn't be you. Suddenly, I flipped open my black briefcase and pulled out one of my resumes, which was, for some unknown reason, I felt extremely compelled to bring them. I didn't care if he ripped it up when I was gone, but he was taking my resume. Look, I said while handing him one of the pieces of thick bond paper, if you, if you can use any of the skills on this resume, give me a call. I'm the best sales rep you'll ever find. I'm good. I punctuated. Still smiling slightly, he accepted the resume from the casually dressed, insistent young wannabe professional. That was the end of our conversation. I calmly walked away. I never even looked back. I knew that he probably hadn't heard a word I said, but I didn't care. I was fired up anyway. I reached the bus stop and waited there with the bus stop blues, along with the other quarter-yielding patrons. I hated public transportation. I was spoiled rotten. I needed to have my own wheels under me. This bus thing would never work. I had to get my ride back. Once again, I had grown disenchanted with my living situation in Southern California. It was still only the 1st of July. I was enrolled and scheduled to start school in September, but I wanted out. As far as I was concerned, my LA summer of fun was over. The partially filled bus finally arrived. I climbed on board with the other passengers and the bus lumbered along the crowded street. I remember gazing reflectively out the bus's large window. My life had to mean more than some testing center's evaluation of my aptitude or some indifferent psychologist's interpretation of my ability. I was a human being. Yeah, I was Af of African descent by way of an oppressive and painful connection to South Carolina and the insidious slave trade but why did I have to continually find myself in a position where I was forced to accept less than what I deserved as a hardworking man? What in the world was so wrong with respect? I obviously took that doctor's attitude and the personal nature of the testing pretty hard. In effect, I had probably made more of an issue of it than was accurate. But I was fed up with people, white people especially, judging me based on their bias, their attitude, or their position, or my lack of position. I had worked as hard as I could to figure out what was expected of me. How come other people didn't seem to have to give a damn about what I thought or felt? If I walked into a doctor's office or applied for a job, 
or sat down at a restaurant or was stopped by a police officer? How come I was supposed to be expected to accept the kinds of negative responses that I had experienced? So without a grand title, I, could e I couldn't even expect common courtesy? Bullshit, I thought. I don't care what I have to do, but nobody is going to make me have to hang my head and look at my shoes in order to make it. I will be respected. I damn sure earned it, I thought. It's times like those that I've created, that have created a lot of gangsters, white and black. You feel like you've done everything you can to follow the rules. You know inside that you mean well, but nobody else gives a damn. And when people see you reaching for your best, then try and shoot you down so that they don't outshine them. It's very, very challenging, personally. For some reason, the testing experiences had set off a three-alarm blaze inside of me. Nothing had really happened that was so unique, but I interpreted it as, being taken, as not being taken seriously. As far as I could see it, those tests would only indicate that I was not as smart nor as good as somebody else by their standards, and that doctor. When I finally got the test results back, reading comprehension was what I had scored the lowest on. I couldn't seem to comprehend anything while sitting across from that pompous so-called professional except his attitude. I guess I was upset. When I finally made it back to the familiar apartment, I had a telephone message. That guy, Bob Enk, had already called me. I immediately stopped in my tracks. All the furious rhetoric that had been bouncing around in my head came to an abrupt halt. You mean that guy that I gave my resume to actually called me? I had only possessed those resumes for a short time, and my first opportunity to use one had garnered a reply. No matter what ultimately happens, I thought, I'm sold on resumes. I immediately returned the man's call. Ultimately, I was awarded my first ever corporate position and thrived from the experience. Go figure. What am I gonna do today to change what I see in this mirror? What am I gonna do today? And a lot of it was, I stopped sitting with the cool guys. I actually tucked my shirt in and went to school looking like, hey man, this is how I'm going to look. If you don't like it, so be it. I had to really wear this, this, this layer of skin. I had to develop a really callous skin on me to, to take whatever you're going to call me, you're going to call me. Whatever I'm going to be, you know, I want a geek, but whoever I am, you're going to see me. You're going to see me for who I am because I need to change who I'm not. They want to say, oh, don't call yourself fat. Don't call yourself dumb. If you're not real and raw with who the f you are, nothing's going to change. And in this nice new world that we live in, we want to hear, you're just a little big. No, man, you might be fat. And it's okay to hear that from yourself and from everybody else. So that's where it started at. And it's raw. It, it gets ugly sometimes in me in the mirror. But I'm also proud of myself to be able to tell myself that and then fix what's in that mirror. Look at yourself, man. Look at yourself. How you address it is you face it. You face it every day. You face it every single day of your life. Where you say, okay, like if you're fat and you need to lose weight, it's patience. 
is patience in this fact of accepting who you are right now. I'm fat, I don't like myself. Accepting the fact that if you lose three or four pounds, that's a huge accomplishment. You have to live in your own world. You cannot judge yourself. That's why social media and all these things are horrible. You can't judge yourself off of the so-called competition that we have made up in our mind. The things that, how people look, how people act, how smart someone is. This is a race that you run completely alone. Are you accountable for what you're doing? Are you accountable? And I mean to the T for what you're saying. I am. And that's where it started. It started with that total, total accountability of let's not lie today. Let's tell people the truth. How did you stop feeling sorry for yourself? When you really sit back at your life and you are in that dark room and you're looking at where you started from and you tell yourself, God, dog, man, my mom is this way, my stupid stepdad got murdered, my dad beat the shit out of me, I can't read and write to save my fucking soul, I've lied about it to everybody, I've cheated on all these tests. My God, man. And then you put a goal in your mind. How are you going to feel, man, when you accomplish this goal coming from that shit? Coming from the hell you came from. A lot of people start from a good starting point. They have a good foundation. What if you can surpass all these motherfuckers? What if everybody who was way up here started up here? And you had, you started with no legs. You had to grow legs to even start walking and then crawling and then running. And then you start passing people and all this given to them. I had to use all this negative shit that was making me weak and horrible as a person. I had to use this as the power that now fueled me. I had to flip it on its head and say, hold up. This might be exactly what I need. The darkness is exactly what I need. It's how you look at your situation. So if you have any mental toughness, any, any ability, if you have any fraction of self-discipline, the ability to not want to do it, but still do it. People have a, a, a hard thing to understand. I hate to run. And, and, and what makes me so crazy, it doesn't need more. People go, well, 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 why do you run if you hate it? What are you talking about? I don't want to take showers and eat either. I hate that too. The, the whole, the, that's life, man. It wasn't until I changed that mentality that I became somebody. I hated going to school, so guess what? I was dumb as shit. But if you can get through to doing things that you hate to do, on the other side is greatness. That's what people understand. By me running, I am callous in my mind. I'm not training for a race. I'm training for life. Ideas are funny little things. They don't work unless you do. And perceptions are powerful big things. In the end, if you think you can, and you're the best at what you do, or you think you can't, and you're a failure, either way, 
you're probably right. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of Round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!